following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. chapter 11, this first 16 verses. Jesus, we know from other gospels, other ways of chronicling the events, is, is in a place removed probably across the Jordan River and the east side of the Jordan River when these things begin. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Oh, let us go also that we may die with him. This is God's holy word. People living in the same time zone with the same clocks and calendars, I have found, can have widely varying views about being on time. Let me use an example from the 8 a.m. service, and since this is 11 a.m., I won't directly step on anyone's toes, of course. At the 8 a.m. service, I find there are some folks who are present at 7.45, maybe even a little earlier. And they sit quietly in the pew, and they're leafing their Bibles, praying, perhaps reading the bulletin, preparing for worship. And they're consistently there that soon. There are others who assume they're quite punctual if they enter while the announcements are underway. But then there's a third group. You know this group? 
This third group says, announcements? What are those? I didn't know they did that in a worship service. Because these folks aim to arrive by about the end of the first hymn, hope they make it in time for the offering. In their minds, they're on time. Now, I'm sure you think I'm trying to embarrass somebody about the issue of punctuality, and I'm really not. I'm trying to point out what different ideas we have because it's always the same people who are there at 745 and the same people who arrive at the end of the first hymn. Time after time. People have different ideas of what it means to be on time. And we also vary a lot in the patience that we show towards God's providential timing as he works in world events and in the fine details of our lives. In Psalm 37, David said words you've probably heard, O rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him and he will give you your heart's desire. God fulfills that promise. But God doesn't work like an online merchandise ordering service. My wife and I ordered something yesterday from L.L. Bean, and they haven't, they've told me, okay, sent back the notice, got your order. They haven't said it has shipped yet. When they say it has shipped, then they'll tell me, oh, it's going to arrive in two days or something, and I'll have a pretty precise uh, expectation. I think we believe prayer works like this. God, here's my need. Today's Sunday. I'm praying on Sunday. I would think Tuesday would be plenty of time for you to deliver this need that I have in mind. Is that the way we pray? It surely is sometimes, isn't it? We're not willing much of the time to be stretched and to exercise true and patient faith and to understand that God always answers prayer, always. Sometimes with a refusal. We find that hard to take. Quite often with a very different schedule than what you and I had in mind. And we also find it hard to believe that his calendar, his schedule of delivery for us is a perfect schedule. Because we're praying, God, bless me right now. There's a very important reason why I need this to happen right now. And we're working on Eastern Standard Time, and we would say, well, God seems to be on Asian Pacific Time or something because he just doesn't seem to get it. Of course he gets it. You and I are the ones who don't get it. And the ones who are not willing to wait and adjust to the timing of the Lord. Well, as we come to John 11, this fourth gospel contains this great episode that begins to point us towards the cross. And as I said, chapter 12 really opens the way for the cross to to move closer and closer to being the central consuming topic of the remaining 10 or so chapters of John. But the cross is, is being prepared for in the incident of the raising of Lazarus and, of course, the resurrection of Jesus as well. This is the only place in the Bible where this great miracle is told about. It is not in the other three Gospels, although, of course, there are many other miracles in those. And John 11.53 tells us that it was this miracle, this raising of Lazarus, that actually uh, stimulated the high priests of the temple to decide directly that Jesus had to die. 
that he had to be executed. Now, here's a miracle that is of singular power and greatness and glory and also a very public miracle. It was not done in private. Jesus raised others from the dead, several others we hear about, a little girl, a young man. And interestingly, they are just as much a revival from the dead. They weren't people who were thought to be dead and were not really and just revived. They were actually dead. But the circumstances weren't quite as spectacular because in most cases they had just expired. And nobody was buried in those other miracles. Here we have a miracle that emphasizes four days dead, four days in the tomb, and very publicly raised and coming forth in front of all the mourners who had gathered to join Mary and Martha grieving their brother. So the power of God is here. The sympathetic heart of Christ is here as we see him literally grieving and weeping along with these sisters at the loss of this man. And, of course, this miracle is also, we've said, a signpost to the great miracle of Christ's own resurrection. We hear the Lord say, my ways are not your ways. And we, he could say, my times are not your times. And there's a lot to comprehend and pick up about that in this 11th chapter. Let, listen for a few things from that this morning. And first, I just want to give you a snapshot of context here because there may be those who know quite a bit about Bethany and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But for those who don't, let's kind of set the scene if we can. If you would imagine that the Jerusalem temple in the center of Jerusalem was, let's say, located where our church is in Mannheim Township on a rather high hill that could be seen all around for quite a long distance, miles, you need to picture where Bethany is. And I'm pretty sure I'm saying this accurately, that Bethany would be no farther away than the little crossroads village of Neffsville. It actually would be this side of Neffsville, all right? If you can get this in your mind geographically. This is a place not in the, the hubbub of Jerusalem, just off to the side on the eastern side of Jerusalem where you could retreat or, or get away, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He made this home of these three a center for his operations. He often spent the night there, had a meal there, was welcome to come in the encouragement of his friends and be received there by friends. And by the way, isn't it, isn't it a great evidence of the humanity of Jesus Christ to know that he needed friends as much as anybody else? He took encouragement from special friends. Well, look now at verses 1 through 6 for a first point here. I'll try to draw from the text in which I would say the clock of divine providence is contrasted against human expediency. The clock of divine providence versus human expediency. You know, when we, if you ever have occasion to dial 911, either a medical emergency in your home or maybe an accident on the street in front or something, you know that the minute you report in and say who you are and tell the message, you're expecting to hear a siren in about 15 minutes or so if things are working as they should. Well, here's Jesus. We know roughly a day's journey away from Bethany. And a messenger comes, and the reason he is a day's journey away is because of all the hostility that has been generated. We've been witness to that as we've studied these chapters in John. It really reached a peak 
near the end of chapter 10 as, as folks were once again ready to stone Jesus or arrest him, but he slipped away from them. He was where he was, conducting his ministry and letting the temperature of things cool down a bit in Jerusalem. This messenger comes, Lord, the one you love, and of course tells him who that is, is very ill. Oh, all right. What response would be expected? We could say this is one of Jesus' best friends. He was a healer. He was the Son of God. So all of us would expect, I would think the disciples would have expected the 911 response. Jesus would go as quick as he could to Lazarus' side and work a healing. But he didn't do that. Maybe he, he could have just commanded a healing from a distance because he actually did that on other occasions. He did, wasn't always immediately present when he healed somebody. And he, he would have prayed and the Lord would have healed Lazarus. And that would have been effectual too. But that didn't happen. I want you to notice that as Mary and Martha presented the message or what the messenger had to say was this, the one you love is sick. That's all that's told to us. No words were added of come quick. Just the need, the one you love is sick. I think it's not stretching the point to say there's something instructive for prayer here. Prayer is bringing our need to God, laying it before him, placing it at his disposal. And it is not making a demand upon him. The demand would have been, Lord, quick, come. If they said that, if they implied that, they didn't say it at least. We can see that here. Petitioning God, you see, is not the same as commanding of God. Well, the message arrives, and Jesus speaks a somewhat mysterious word in saying, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I think that some of the other modern translations do a little bit better idea with the sense of this by saying it does not end in death rather than it does not lead to death. The the last word here will not be death. You know the word penultimate? Next to last. The next to last word is death, but the last word is going to be something greater than that. Well, one thing we're taught here is that our bodily health is not necessarily God's first and foremost consideration for us in all times and in all places. It is the great thing that we prize, of course, isn't it? God... What is it? Uh, You got your health, you got everything. You've heard me say this many times before. You can have your health and have nothing, spiritually speaking. If you think God prizes your physical health above everything else, you need to be educated, I believe. There always are among Christians and have been in all generations since the early church those who would say that part and parcel of being God's special child, elect of God, redeemed in Christ, filled by his Holy Spirit, is that you will be able to have the wonderful gift of health all the time. And, and there are people that say, look, all it is is a matter of you having the right faith. Come to God. Here's my need, O God, and I claim my healing. Haven't you heard of that before? I know of Christians whose lives have been deeply hurt 
by being told things like that and being manipulated by others who say, what's wrong with your faith that you haven't claimed your healing? The automatic claiming of a healing is an unbiblical folly. Real Christians get seriously sick and physically die fully within the permissive will of God, ladies and gentlemen. We certainly do. The love of God for his believing people in Christ does not grant us exemption from cancer or brain tumors or dementia or any other illness you can think of or even from death itself, physical death. Sickness absolutely is not a sign that God is immediately displeased with you for some reason. You know what it's a sign of? It's a sign that you are a human being period. We all get sick. And a sovereign God may have some far-reaching purpose you can't guess at today that he's going to accomplish either by healing you, which indeed he will do on many occasions. God does heal. We're not saying he he never heals. And he often heals beyond what the doctors can explain. But there is no guarantee he will do that. And his greater purpose and greater glory may be accomplished even somehow in your death. Jesus made it clear here that the greater thing was going to be seen because Lazarus would die and be raised, not because he would snap his fingers and say from 50 miles away, be healed, Lazarus. That wasn't the will of God on this occasion. And actually there was something greater to be accomplished than any temporary healing could have accomplished. And so we hear these, these ver- verses here in uh, the first six verses I'm talking about that say Jesus stayed there two days longer. Notice it says because he loved them. You know, some people say, wait, wait a minute, because he loved them he stayed longer? Yes, because attuned to the wisdom of God, he loved them and he stayed longer. And there are some that say, well, then Jesus was causing the death of Lazarus. Well, that actually isn't true. Let me help you with the math if you need help. We believe he was the better part of a day's journey away from Bethany. It took the messenger that kind of time to get there, not just a half an hour or something. He was a ways away, would have required most of a day to get back. He stayed two days and then took another day to come back. Okay, students, how many days is that? Four, I think. And doesn't the text say in verse 17, when he came, Lazarus had been in the tomb how many days? Four days. It's pretty evident that Lazarus had died probably in the time from the messenger's departure and had died already when the message came to Jesus. His staying didn't cause the death of this man. Neither does what you may suppose or some may suppose in their most cynical or agnostic kind of thinking that the negligence of God causes the death of anyone you love or anyone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. The heavenly Father has his delays and his times and his ways of doing things that are timed to a reason and a purpose that are not understood by us on many occasions. 
when we would pray, if we were there, we were Mary or Martha praying before this message was sent for Lazarus. I don't know the, we don't know the nature of the illness, if it came really suddenly or developed slowly, but they were probably praying, Lord God, our God, our Savior, please heal our brother. He's the head of our home. He's the source of our livelihood. Please, Lord, you must understand, we need this miracle and we need it now. Isn't that how we pray? And if God won't send the miracle now, then he's not God. How many people walk around in their atheism or agnosticism hinged to some kind of a no healing and death that has occurred in their family circle and say, shaking their fist at God all the way. God was asleep at the switch for my wife, for my mother, for my father, and I can't believe in him. Well, our scripture says God has invisible, long-range purposes in view that we can't guess at. And before those are going to come clear to us, maybe years and years down the road, maybe not even in this lifetime, we first are going to have to wail with grief and cry some bitter tears sometimes. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? What a wonderful example he was. Godly man, hated by his brothers. There he was in a prison cell in Egypt, put there by no doing of his own. People promised they would remember him when they got out and speak a good word. They got out and forgot all about him. Joseph languished in the prison. And when he finally got out and when God did amazing things of raising him to a position of power, he was able to face his own brothers who had betrayed him and treated him terribly and say to them, you meant this against me for evil, but God meant it for good. Now Joseph didn't see that when he was in that prison. And he probably didn't see it for quite a long time afterward. But eventually he was able to see God indeed was doing something quite different that he didn't expect. The highest degree of faith for us comes sometimes in the ability simply to wait on the Lord. Be still. Stop your arguing and your debating and your complaining and your human reasoning. Be still and know that I am God. To pray that great prayer of Jesus, not my will, not my demand, but your will be done, O Lord. You see, our Savior is loving enough not to do everything we demand of him. How terrible it would be if he was committed to do everything we demanded. He would not be God. And he would not even be loving because many of the things we think ought to happen are not really loving in the end result. Instead, he will do whatever will bring ultimate glory to himself, and that will ultimately be for our eternal good. One author said this, the Lord often does not seem to get there when you want him to, but when he arrives, he's always right on Now, secondly, we look at verses 7 to 10. I'm just going to glance off of these verses for a minute. But Jesus told the disciples he was going back to Bethany. They protested, Lord, it's dangerous there. And he told them something. It sounds a little mystical or, or maybe not quite sure you know what he meant, but I'm going to 
condense it to this phrase that he was saying, Christian disciples must redeem the time that God gives us. There are 12 hours in a day, and we need to walk by the light of the gospel of God that's shining in us. If we walk by that light, we won't stumble. It is a little obscure the way he worded it, I admit. But he seems to be referring to going forward to do a thing that might be dangerous, might have uncertain results. Nevertheless, it clearly is what God wants us to do. Therefore, do it. Don't live your life by avoiding the hard places that you might see, by the objections that people could obviously raise that that this might not be such a good idea if you can see by the light of clear day, the light of the Word of God, the light of the Holy Spirit, that it is a right thing to do, then your life, like that of Jesus, is protected until God's appointed hour for you. Maybe He is calling you to do something that doesn't seem right to everybody else around you. And they say, what are you doing that for? Don't you understand the dangerous possibility? Yes, I do. But I think the Word of God is demanding this of me, and this is on His schedule for me. I like a quote that comes from the life of one of my favorite Christian men of American history, General Stonewall Jackson. Yes, I know what side he was on, but he was a great man. Stonewall once had an aide comment to him about his apparent fearlessness in battle. He would sit tall in the saddle of his horse, and the bullets would be flying, and he would be like a statue. He didn't seem to move or flinch. And the aide said, General, how, you know, aren't you afraid? How can you do that? And Jackson said, my Christian faith teaches me to feel as safe in the heat of battle as I would be in my bed, for God alone has fixed the time of my death. Now, that's really pretty much on track of what Jesus was saying here. Invest your life with all your energy and all your strength to obey the light of God as he gives it in his word. Walk according to that every day that you can. Then we come to verses 11 to 15 here with a finishing point as Jesus told his men that Lazarus had fallen asleep. And they thought, big deal. Everybody falls asleep and wakes up again. But then, of course, he corrected and said, well, he's dead. The splendid truth that I give you here out of this text is this. Measured on God's calendar, Christian death really is only sleep. Now, humanity invents many euphemisms for death. You know what a euphemism is, young people? A pretty word that makes something sound kind of nicer than it really is. Somehow we don't like to say so-and-so died. So we say, he passed away. I had to live in Maryland before I heard them chop off the second word on that, and, and they would always say, she passed. I was always waiting for, away. But no, they just said, passed. I think that's a southern thing. The Bible doesn't put window dressing on its language of death. It's not afraid to say someone died. Lazarus died. And in the case of a non-believer, it's not afraid to use even harsher, more stark words. We've looked at this word a couple times in, in recent weeks, the word to perish. 
that terrible word that means everlasting separation from God and facing God's wrath and eternal darkness, that's what you say about the death of a non-believer who does not have the atonement covering of Christ on their life. They perished. They died not only in body but in soul. But on the other hand, we have a specialized term used exclusively for the death of redeemed believers in Christ, and here it is. He fell asleep. Now, this is never used for an unbeliever's death anywhere in the Bible, but it is used for believers. When Stephen died in Acts 7, it says he fell asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 18 refers to those who had previously died among the Christian community as those who had fallen asleep in Christ. Now, be careful with the literalism. Your soul does not sleep. That's a famous error, a famous heresy that some tried to teach is that the soul somehow sleeps until the return of Christ. No, sir. That is not what we believe, and I'm not going down the whole avenue of what we could teach on that realm right now, but your soul is conscious and alive beyond death, immediately after death. To be absent from this body is what? To be present with the Lord, conscious of that presence, seeing him face to face. What kind of glory that is is so hard to take in when we are told, well, you don't have a body yet. The resurrection of the body hasn't occurred yet. So we could say perhaps that your body sleeps, but your soul does not. But what do we know about sleep? It's a good thing, right? Those of you who can do it for eight hours consecutively, I congratulate you. I I haven't experienced that in many, many, many years. I sleep three hours at a snatch at best. And some have even more difficulty. But sleep is a wonderful thing. It leads to recovery. It leads to strengthening. It, It lets your body restore itself. It's never something to be afraid of. You say, oh, I don't think I really want to go to sleep tonight. Something bad might happen. No. Oh, sleep. If you're a college student, you know you can do it around the clock because I guess you've been up for weeks at a time and you come home and sleep 24 hours on you. Well, that's what our college students used to do anyway. Jesus Christ changed the grave for Christians, so it's nothing but a rest for your physical body while your soul continues in glorious presence of Christ. The great theologian of England, John Owen, said this about a Christian's death. He wrote in a book that was named The Glory of Christ. Owen said, I'll quote him, at death, the soul departs the body and is immediately freed from all weakness, disability, doubt, and fear. All physical infirmity is gone forever. By virtue of the death of Christ alone are the souls of believers free at death from the presence of sin and all the effects of sin wrought upon them. And he said their souls flourish and expand to their fullest extent. Back in the days when we could speak of a Negro spiritual, I think it's still all right to use that term, of a a spiritual from African-American brothers. From the Civil War days, they had one they sang that, that looked forward to the time when that living soul and that body in the grave would be reunited when the coming of Christ, the glorious appearing of Christ came. You know what the spiritual called it? The great 
waking up morning. That's tremendous. We look forward to that great waking up morning. Well, we leave this text for today with Doubting Thomas, good old Doubting Thomas, expressing something for us in verse 16. Same Thomas that had to feel the wounds later on. He hadn't heard anything really that Jesus had had to say. All he could think about was the danger of Jerusalem. So when he heard they were going, his sardonic, cynical comment in verse 16 is, oh, great, let us go too. We might as well all go die together. Well, I hope you got something more out of what Jesus had to say here than Thomas did. I hope you grasp the fact that you can rest in the purposes and the timing of God at work in your life. That you can take hold of each day that he gives you and whether the circumstances seem adverse against you or not, if the will of God and the word of God is showing you the way forward, go in that way you'll be blessed, and you'll accomplish things. A maturing Christian is a person who begins to interpret circumstances of daily life through the lens of the love of Christ instead of measuring Christ's love by the apparent circumstances. You see what a difference that makes? You say, I know I am loved. I know my Father has a plan. I know He is working. I know He will bring about glory. And so I can live defiantly to some extent of what circumstances are showing me. Instead of looking at the circumstances and saying, God doesn't love me. God has forsaken me. Let us measure Christ's love, not by the circumstances, but by the fact of who He is and what he has proved. Our God is not in haste. He never acts too soon or too late. And if we trusted that his time was perfect time, that would change the way we live, the way we pray, and the way we thank him. I give you this word from the Old Testament to close, Isaiah 30, verse 18. The Lord makes this promise. The Lord waits. Why does he wait? to be gracious to you. So blessed are those who wait for him. Our Father, teach us your timing. We are impatient. We are full of schedules and deadlines. We're frantic to be places and to respond to things. And much of the time we're racing around out of touch with what you're doing. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to simply wait and believe that you are working. To give you glory and thanks even when not all the reasons can be seen. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and his power demonstrated in this great resurrection miracle over Lazarus. We believe that miracle will be for us as well. One great day. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.